Happy New Year. Welcome to Taking a Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, who is presently impersonating Ernest Shackleton, and you can't say fairer than that. Hey, Frank. As always, great to be with you. Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners. And we want to thank everybody for their comments, both positive and negative, um, and public and private comments, uh, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It's really important, and we hope that people will stick to their New Year's resolution to subscribe and rate us on iTunes so that we can get some of that sweet, sweet Casper mattress fortune. That's also, exactly right. We, your, your, your private hate nourishes us, but your public adulation will fund us. Indeed. Uh, would, maybe we can start using, maybe we'll be able to afford some sound effects or something. I don't know. We can become like zany, like morning disc jockey guys. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's, that is exactly what the world needs more of right now. <laughs> Based on, uh, on, on, AM, on uh, AM radio drive time. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And uh, finally, uh, please do subscribe. Please do follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P, as in Pavlovian. All right, Frank, what are we talking about first? So we're, we we can't avoid it. We have to get into it. It's uh, it's it's everything that is on everyone's mind in politics right now. Uh, you know, we we've occasionally tried to avoid major subjects where we don't really have that much to to offer, where the the general response has been out there, but. Uh, the Wolf Book, uh, Fire and Fury, has become is is such such a thing uh, that there is no way around it. We have got to talk about uh, the about the new book on the Trump campaign, the Trump White House, uh, that is creating an enormous stir in the already stirred up White House and Trump orbit. Yeah, so the book was supposed to come out this week. They pushed it forward and launched it last week uh, after the president uh, threatened. Uh, uh, legal action. Uh, again, I mean, that's kind of his modus operandi. It's what he's been doing for years and years and years. Uh, I, I think it'll be hilarious if he actually goes through with it because then discovery comes in and basically he's just proven all of Wolf correct. Um, president also went after uh, Bannon and his lawyers wrote to him saying that he broke confidentiality agreements, uh, which is interesting because if that's the case, then some of the things that he said are true. Um, but all in all, it's remarkable for a book like this to come out this early in a presidency. Uh, it's obviously not unusual for a book like this to come out. Um, some are more sensationalist than others. Um, but if you think of like, um, uh, former treasury secretary O'Neill's book about, uh, uh, Bush's white house was a pretty big deal when it first came out. Anytime Bob Woodward writes a book, it's usually a very big deal because it's based on deep reporting, uh, you know, going back to like George Stephanopoulos's book about Clinton was a really big deal when it came out during Clinton's time in office. Um, but all in all, this book is, um, it, it, it kind of just uh, uh, solidifies what we already knew, I think. And I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway from it. I mean, the salacious details and details that might be right, might be wrong, might be exaggerated, might be taken out of context, might be off the record things that Wolf decided to put on the record. That's kind of, you know, maybe, Frank, you can kind of give your take on on who Michael Wolf is. Yeah. Wolf is uh, a... A provocateur and a recanteur, I believe. That's, yes, that's exactly... I was about to describe him as a journalist. That would be inaccurate. Uh, a provocateur and recanteur, uh, uh, you know, sort of a... I would say a kind of cut-rate American version of Christopher Hitchens without any governing philosophy. 
uh, someone who, and this with, with all respect to Christopher Hitchens, a man with, about whom I have very mixed feelings, as I think a lot of people do, but sees himself as a kind of convener of people for lively discussion uh, and then recounting the tales of having been uh, in the anteroom of, uh, you know, of history, of knowing great people uh, and, and of having sort of been witness to it and telling stories about them, absent the kind of overall arching, uh, overarching ideological theories that define Christopher Hitchens. I'm, I'm, somehow I have done Hitchens wrong in this, and that's really saying a lot. Uh, no, no worse than what he, what he did to himself, God rest him. All right, so who is, so to get back to Michael Wolff, uh, he is uh, in part a, a, I mean, I think it'd be the, the the definitive piece here. Actually, I would I would argue for came from came from of all people, and I like this guy a lot. It came from Drew McGarry at uh, at GQ, whose basic point is Wolf is an, a known charlatan, uh, a you know a known uh, you know a known fantasist and fabulist, an inventor of things, and this book is probably close to a hundred percent true. And the way that he got this is sort of the prevailing theory amongst a lot of people who don't like Wolf. And the idea here, and this is this is McGarry's point. And again, you know, for those who may who may know, McGarry is a uh, is a culture and sports writer who's written for a number of places. Uh, he writes a column in GQ that began with sort of culture and, and a little bit of sports, and is basically just turned into all politics all the time because everything is political now, um, and probably always have been. We've just been pretending it hasn't. The point here is Wolf used all of the tools of access journalism to get to all of these people, all the, you know, the people in the Trump orbit, uh, you know, he curried favor, he invited them or, you know, invited them for dinner. He gathered them under one pretense or another. And because these people are, are not sophisticated operators with the media and were, I mean, there's no other way to put it. They were dumb enough to believe that a reporter who has said to you anything other than, we, it is agreed and understood that this conversation is 100% off the record. And ideally, you have some evidence, you have some, some written proof of that, some confirmation of that. They were dumb enough to believe the reporter who has, that they could, who has said anything other than that uh, won't report on what they said in a conversation. So these people gathered around, Wolf gathered these people around him. He got, you know, he got to them through one means or another. They told him things either without having checked that they were off the record or maybe with a kind of a wink and a nudge or whatever. And then he absolutely burned them all. Uh, this is an astonishingly brazen act that in, that it would be fun to describe as being unethical. If any of these, if any of the subjects had ever subscribed to any concept of ethics at all, uh, so this, I mean, yeah. So this, this is where the this is where the book comes from. He clearly got some of this stuff. It is, clearly got some of this stuff under, let's say, potentially dubious circumstances. But again, if you are in a, if you are at the top level of a presidential campaign, or if you are in the White House, uh, certainly, it is. You know, I would like to say it is incumbent upon every single journalist to behave with ethics. That may be, but behave with scrupulous ethics. You know, there's an argument to be made there. But it is damn sure incumbent upon you to have it together enough. Uh, to not get caught spouting off about your boss and colleagues to anyone who'll goddamn listen, uh, and that seems to be the story of this White House, and that's clearly the story of this book. It's full of a bunch of salacious stuff, most of which I suspect is incon is inconsequential, except that it furthers kind of what we've already known about Trump as a as a deeply incurious and dysfunctional human being, surrounded by incredibly and cartoonishly dysfunctional people. Yeah, I, John Podhoritz. Um who is not yet a friend of the pod, but the editor-in-chief of Commentary Magazine. We had Noah Roth, Rothman on a couple uh, weeks ago. Uh, in his review of the book in the New York Post, he wrote, uh, quote, Wolf is a terrific writer who has a lifelong habit of weaving in solid reporting with errant speculation and hard-gotten facts with feverish fancies. 
in a manner that makes it impossible for a reader to separate what is true from what is too good to be true. And that, to me, uh, it really kind of summarizes the entire book, very much what you were saying. Uh, What we knew from all the general uh, great reporting that's been coming out of the White House, whether it's from the Washington Post or the New York Times or Politico or Axios or wherever else, uh, all those things that you just said about Donald Trump and his staff uh, are things that we know for sure. And this book just takes all those things one step a little bit further. Um, And I think that basically what uh, a lot of what this book does, um, and whether or not it was Wolf's intention, I I imagine it probably was at least partially, um, was to push the conversation on Donald Trump being um, so incompetent that he needs to be impeached. Um, and it's something that Frank, you and I have not really delved into on, on, on the podcast because we were both, we're both still in agreement that it's a a deep long shot. Um, and that if you poll anybody right now, uh, I still subscribe to this. I would say that the president has a better chance than not of being reelected in 2020. If you, if an election was run, you know, if all things held equal, um, but there's a lot going on around um, this idea of impeachment, which when we kind of ran through this however many weeks ago, we put impeachment at pretty low possibility of the way Trump leaves office, uh, forced and foremost putting it, putting forward the idea that he just quits because he's bored um, or dies because he's incredibly unhealthy, uh, which obviously we don't wish on anybody, but, you know, could could happen. Um, and then the other option, uh, which we've now lost the opportunity of, was the Strange King MAGA bill, uh, which yeah, is yes, really what we hoped God, for. God, the Strange King MAGA bill, you know, that's that is one of the great the, that's one of the great losses, I think, of yeah. 2017. <laughs> Arguably the worst. I will hear no comers don't at me. Yeah, but there, there's uh, a couple things that, that we know have happened in the last few weeks that I think need to be taken a little bit more seriously than they had been previously. Um, the first is there was a, a psychiatrist, a well-known psychiatrist who came up and um, uh, briefed members of the Democratic Caucus on the Hill about Trump's mental stability. Uh, There's also a bill that Democrats have pushed forward that now has something like 30 co-sponsors to create a panel of uh, psychological and um, uh, experts to suggest whether or not Donald Trump is fit to hold office, which then can be used to trigger the 25th Amendment. Um, and then there's also Tom Steyer's campaign, which now has 4 million signatures and he's spending, I don't know, upwards of $15 million on uh, to push for impeachment. Um, again, this is a lot of a lot to do with nothing, because if we've learned nothing over the last year is that Republicans view deregulation and tax cuts as more important than morality and the safety of the country or globe. Yeah, it's I, this is exactly it. This this whole nothing is going to come of any of this stuff, barring actually I can't even think of what the extreme event would have to be. Nothing is going to come of any of this until uh, post twenty eighteen. That's that's really what it comes down to. It's going to take a Democratic House, you know, maybe a, a Senate retaken by Democrats, which is insane as that is, is still very much in the cards potentially. It would take something like that in order for uh, for a ser- for articles of impeachment to be moved against the president for there to be a Senate trial. That's what it's that's what it's going to take. All of that said, it is worth talking about this because with with a book like Wolf's, and this again is where this whole conversation began. What really kind of prompted this stuff coming out of the last couple of weeks? The action is the reaction, and the reaction from Trump has been to threaten lawsuits. Again, that's what he does with everything. Someone doesn't bring him a diet coke, he threatens to sue him. That's how he hand. That's how he operates. Uh, but also, uh, he has taken to Twitter to unburden himself of some truly remarkable observations, including being the second person I know in the entire world who 
puts in the who writes the verbal tick like in a tweet. I know one other person who does this is part of the way that she naturally speaks. It makes sense when she's writing. For the president, it does not. I'm so include I can't remember what the exact text of the tweet, but one of them is I'm comma like comma really smart. Or something to that, or something to that effect. It was unbelievable. Anyway, which is also remarkable, considering that there is a character limit, right? And Trump also. This is strange. This is really strange because Trump doesn't. I don't want to get into the you know this 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 kind of absurd uh, you know Kremlinology of trying to read exactly what the the text of the you know, the minor punctuation of Trump of Trump's tweets means uh, you know as part of the broader power struggle or power power center of the of the White House. Uh, but it was really strange. The thing that got most people's attention and that is much more relevant is the president of the United States declaring himself to be very stable and a genius, which, of course, is something that a stable genius would naturally say. The Dems getting briefed by a psychiatrist, to be clear about what's happening here, psychologists and psychiatrists have as a matter of, of, of professional standard to usually decline to comment on the mental health of, of presidents and public figures uh, for a few reasons. First, it's an ethical... It's called the uh, Goldwater Rule, I think. Yes, exactly. It's considered unethical, and, and frankly it is, it's considered unethical to diagnose anyone that you haven't treated. So they can't issue a diagnosis. They have shied away from even commenting because of the Goldwater Rule. And there's a, you know, a sense that um, there can be, uh, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a sense that you could have an un, unanticipated and uh, a professionally uh, potentially inaccurate uh, or uh, effect on politics. Uh, and public affairs, if you go around declaring people to be unfit or crazy or in some other way, some other way not suited for their role unless you actually have done the professional diligence to to really understand what's happening with the individual patient. So again, you're not meant to diagnose anyone that you haven't treated. That said, it is when someone is very public, and this president is weirdly <laughs> transparent in a way that no one else has because he tweet because of the the way he tweets, the way he speaks in an unguarded way and has for a long time. There's a, there's a greater body of documentation on this president than there may be on anyone who's had the office before, strangely enough, even people who have been elected officials, because he spent his entire life trying to get himself in the public eye. It is possible to say there are behaviors that are consistent with certain diagnoses, and the president is exhibiting these behaviors. That's as far as you can really go. You can't say, I would diagnose the president of the United States as a narcissist. He very clearly is like that. I mean, honestly, if, if there is anyone out there who still maintains that it's somehow wrong to diagnose Donald Trump as a narcissist, I would ask where you have been for the previous 30 years, much less the previous two. But beyond that, there are other potential diagnoses at work here. Uh, and and that's not necessarily worth getting into them in great detail, because, again, this is where you would really need to spend more time with the guy. God help us. And to begin to understand what and parse what some of those options are. But there, there is again. We've, we've talked. I think we've mentioned this before. But the thing that I keep coming back to and just can't get out of my head is an analysis of his syntax that was done during the that was done. I think last year, tracing the tracing the way he speaks. So the the content of his sentences and his public observ and his his public declarations over the previous twenty five years. And what they have found is a what they found is a significant deterioration in the sophistication and cogency of Trump's language over 20 years. Now, that is a thing that can be traced and, and, you know, and can be measured, and that would be consistent with someone who is beginning to demonstrate signs of dementia. We've talked about that a little bit. Uh, Charlie Pierce, who writes for uh, Esquire uh, on politics, 
tremendous, tremendous writer, uh, wrote a wrote a book about his own father, and I believe all of his, I think many of his uncles, possibly an aunt, uh, struggled with Alzheimer's. Basically, his father's entire family uh, became symptomatic with Alzheimer's. It was a, it's quite a harrowing book, actually. Uh, but so he has a, and, and he has spoken on issues around surrounding the treatment of dementia in America. Uh, and, and his point was, this guy is really beginning to seem like someone who is symptomatic with dementia. Uh, Trump's father uh, was symptomatic in his 80s. It would not be uncommon for someone who has a history of Alzheimer's to be symptomatic in their 70s. Another potential explanation for some of this behavior uh, is Trump would be, I think, a, a, a tremendous candidate for a congestive heart failure, one of the symptoms of which is de- is demented behavior. It is becoming, I think, increasingly like the noise. There's, there's always been noise in this direction, but it's getting louder. It is very clear um, that you know there are sort of that there are more people who are beginning to look for specific explanations for why Trump may appear to be may appear to be demented. And while that is happening at one level, at the level of the general public, even his own supporters, and this is actually specifically his own supporters, what we are finding is, in surveys is a gradual decline even amongst his supporters and people believing he's up to the job. Right? They are not jumping ship on him wholesale, uh, but his popularity is declining, declining overall. And the numbers for fitness to govern all of the kind of stuff, you know, cares about people like me, that's a slightly different question, but particularly fitness, fitness for the job is up to the job, is doing a good job. All of that is beginning to fall even amongst his own supporters. Uh, so the, the general, so 2018, there will be a lot of discussion about whether or not Trump is up to the job. Uh, there shouldn't be, but there will be a lot of discussion of that. Uh, but nothing on that is going to happen until uh, until uh, post, uh, post-election. That's as good a summary as anything you'll hear. Uh, I just want to add one thing. James Fallows had a good article in The Atlantic. Uh, Fallows uh, is a great writer. Um, he worked in the Jimmy Carter White House as a speechwriter. Um, and he it did a lot of reporting on geniuses and the tech industry uh, during the during the '90s, and I apologize if you can hear my if you can hear Batgirl screaming in the background. Uh, but he did make one really interesting point towards the end of the article. He talked about the Dunning Kruger effect, um, which the original title of the article by David Dunning and Justin Kruger uh, said, "Unskilled and unaware of it, how difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessments." Uh, meaning basically that the more limited someone is in reality, the more talented the person imagines himself to be. Uh, and if we know anything about Donald Trump, uh, either from this book or from any of the previous 30 years, is that he does not live in any way, shape, or form in the reality that the, rec- that the rest of us do, uh, which leads directly into some of his uh, aggrandizements and self-delusions. Um, speaking of self-delusions, um, there, uh, was some news this week about the, uh, voter fraud commission, uh, that was co-chaired by the secretary of state of Kansas, who's just an evil motherfucker. There's no other way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, he has it on his business cards and it's, it honestly, it's a giant help. Yeah. My, my, uh, my cousin, uh, he oh, was, hey, Chris, uh, what do you do? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. oh, oh, okay. Yeah, a cousin, a cousin of mine, uh, was a director of acquisitions for a film company for a little while. His, uh, first business cards said director of inquisitions. So I called him Torquemada for a little oh, bit. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, solid, solid work. But uh, the dissolution of the Voter Fraud Commission, um, which was a, was a fraud of a commission to begin with, uh, but uh, we can talk about that for a couple minutes before we bring on uh, Amir Hanjani, who's our guest today.
Yeah, this is incredibly relevant. Uh, so shortly after his election, Donald Trump put, or his inauguration, Donald Trump put together a voter fraud commission to look into allegations of voter fraud on a massive scale in the 2016 election. What this guy wants in his little heart of hearts. Well, I think he basically summarized it saying that he would have won the popular vote had 3 million people not voted illegally. Correct. That's exactly it. What this guy wants in his little heart of hearts is for the general election results of 2016 to be overturned or at least have an asterisk stuck next to it. Uh, really, he wants it overturned. The, the, the commission got off. The, the commission uh, started slowly and petered out. It was it essentially it doesn't it didn't have the authority because secret state elections are governed at the state level by secretaries of state. Each state and commonwealth has one. That is where state. That's where elections are commissioned. They are not. They are not. Uh, uh, they are not administered federally. Uh, the federal government can be involved in elections in specific cases of where there's a concern about discrimination with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, big big chunks of civil rights uh, legislation, the VRA being the most notable, uh, were designed specifically to deal with the discrimination at the polling place. But with, with the exception of of cases of absolute discrimination. Uh, st- elections are the administration of elections is entirely a state matter, and so a large number of secretaries of state responded to this uh, the voter fraud commission by basically telling them to piss off. It had no teeth; it is going nowhere, and it was finally put out of its put it out of its and our misery uh, last week. So, R.I.P. Voter Fraud Commission. I bring this up primarily to say that was a that was a good thing. It was a fraud. It was ridiculous. It should never have been commissioned. I'm glad it's gone. Uh, but this was one element of a now decades long and and if I may say, quite successful program by Republicans across the country to alter voting laws in a way that genuinely suppresses the vote. Uh, and and it is and I, I know from personal experience, and it is painful to me in some respects how casually political you know, pol- you know uh, political professionals like me have just have to accept uh, and and adapt to uh, voting rules across the country that are often quite difficult and make it quite difficult for people to vote. It's not like we don't care. We, many of us do. We care very deeply about it. Uh, but you just you turn up to a state. For you may be in, in one cycle, for example, in a state that has a month of early in-person voting at accessible voting locations where with where it's easy to get a postal ballot and election day is you know is 12 or 14 or even 16 hours long. Uh, you know, goes on, you know, starts early, ends late. Uh, you may get one of those states where the idea is we're gonna make it as easy for people to vote as they po- as we possibly can. And then you'll turn up the next cycle in a state where voting hours are from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m or seven to seven, uh, where there is no early in per- there is no early in person voting at all, and where you have to sign a legal affidavit uh, in order to get a postal ballot, and where you have to show two kinds of identification. Right there, this this all of the rules by state are very different. It will not surprise you to learn that voter turnout is lower in states where it's where voting is you know from six to six, for example, and it's only on voting day, and it's hard to get a postal. Right, each of these. For people who are really politically engaged, it can be hard to understand this. But for you know, I think for the for the for a lot of Americans, voting is not something that's on their mind a lot. It can be a hard thing. It's a break from routine. It can be a hard thing to integrate into your day. Uh, and the more chances you give people to vote, the better at it. The the, better, the greater the likelihood they will do it. Uh, so anyway, this has been that effort to restrict 
you know, voting time and you know, voting availability, the ability to get uh, postal ballots, and what kind of identification that you have to show in order to vote. All of that is part of a program that has been run and funded largely by, among others, the Koch brothers. Chris Kobach, and uh, the former Secretary of State of Kansas, was really the architect of the national plan. Uh, that that effort is the Voter Fraud Commission is gone, but that effort is still very much underway because having beaten. Uh, the so-called Obama coalition, or a, a variant of it, uh, communities uh, communities of color, women, and uh, particularly particularly women of color, and uh, college-educated Americans, having beaten that coalition on a sec- essentially a technicality, uh, the Trump administration and the major donors that are sort of that sort of surround him and the Republican infrastructure are now going to attempt to legislate it out of existence. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a federal attempt to pass legislation on this at some point, although it doesn't look like it's going to happen in 2018. Uh, but one way or the other, you know, this, this is the point. We come, you know, we, you know, we come to bury the Voter Fraud Commission, not to praise it, and a good thing too, uh, but don't think it's dead. It's going to be back in some other form. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's worked any campaigns ever, uh, particularly, well, in the last 40 years, knows that there is a systemic attempt to as you said, to, to drown out the, uh, drown out the, um, uh, minority populations votes. Um, we are joined now, or at least very briefly will be joined by, uh, our friend, uh, Amir Hanjani, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic council, South Asia center. He is also director of RAK petroleum public company limited an exploration and production company listed on the Oslo exchange. He as well serves as a senior advisor to Carve Communications, a crisis communications and public relations firm in New York. Uh, He is a Truman National Security Fellow. Uh, As uh, Frank and I mentioned frequently, we are both members of the Truman National Security Project. Um, Amir focuses on Iran-U.S. relations, the Iran nuclear deal, the Persian Gulf, the Middle East security. More broadly, he has also published extensively in Reuters, Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg View, The Hill, National Interest, and Al Jazeera. We will dive right in. Uh, Basically... um, Frank and I decided we wanted to have Amir join us because there's obviously a lot of protests and a lot of discussion going on around Iran. There's a lot that the uh, administration has to decide to do over the next uh, two weeks in terms of the Iran deal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Amir, thanks so much for joining us. And if you want to just dive in, uh, give us the briefest explanation of what the hell is going on in Iran right now. Sure. So first of all, it's nice to be with you and, and Frank. Um, the what's happened to Iran is really uh, it's a homegrown um, rural dissatisfaction with the elites, um, the economic program that the Iranian government has um, been promoting, following through various five-year plans over the last thirty-nine years. They always have a five-year plan. Um, has really failed the urban poor and the urban poor make up the backbone of this regime. They are the uh, individuals in the besiege, the families uh, draw, the revolutionary guard draws heavily upon those families. Um, In essence, they are the ones that, uh, you know, are the glue that holds the regime together. Um, It was in these cities, cities that, that frankly, Ellie and and Frank, I had never heard of before. I had to look on a map to find out where they were. Um, Cities that that not many Iranians even knew, you know, where they were. Uh, They essentially rose up and said, you know, this, this economy isn't, is, isn't 
able to sustain our lives, is not able to sustain the lives of our family. We fall further and further behind every year. Um, prices keep going up. Our purchasing power keeps going down. Um, the Iranian currency keeps, keeps getting devalued. Um, there are not enough jobs. Um, while we have good social services, education, healthcare, when our kids, you know, graduate high school, graduate college, they have no place to go. You, know, you have a lot of people in Iran with PhDs driving cabs. Um, and furthermore, um, this nuclear deal that President Rouhani has been touting that's going to make our lives so much better hasn't really done so. That's one, uh, one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is actually Rouhani's budget as I've studied the situation more and more over the last week, it's probably the most transparent budget that the Islamic Republic has ever put forth in that he has leaked it to the masses via this app called Telegram. Yeah, this was, this was really interesting. I heard the, uh, the New York Times bureau chief uh, in an interview on uh, Mike Bar- uh, Barbaro's podcast uh, said that Rouhani released the entire budget, which is something that had really never been done before. Never. And so the, the, The masses got to see, you know, so in 2009, when there was a green movement, Ellie and Frank, there were about 1 million uh, smartphone users in Iran. Today, estimates vary uh, between 40 and 50 million smartphone users in Iran. Iran's a population of 80 million people. So things spread really fast. And everyone is all, and, and so because of US sanctions, especially during the, you know, the time before the JCPOA, Iran wasn't able to get the Amazon or the BBC apps that you know, we're all able to get to watch the news. They made their own apps. Iranian app developers made their own apps. And they have their own sort of intranet. And Telegram, this app Telegram, which is, I kind of make it, parallel to it to our WhatsApp, but it actually does a lot more in terms of you can have your own telegram channel and broadcast to, you know, other people who follow you, which is, you know, a, a bit different. I'm not very tech savvy, but, uh, but Ira- the Iranian population under 35 is exceptionally tech savvy. And so this, this thing leaked on telegram and, you know, it, most everyone knew what was going on, knew how much they were spending on their military budget, how much these very large religious institutions were getting from subsidies, were getting from the government, and they were not being taxed. And Rouhani wants to tax these religious institutions. He also wants to withdraw subsidies from the masses in these rural and rural areas that Ahmadinejad was giving them, cash subsidies. So these two things don't really make sense, right? If you're sitting in one of these villages and you say, okay, my subsidies are going to be cut. I'm getting further and further behind. I, I can't make ends meet. And yet you are increasing the budget for these massive religious institutions that are untaxed. And I think that Rouhani purposely did that. I think he did that because he wanted to tell the sort of deep state of Iran, the unelected pillars of the Iranian government, that, hey, if you don't let me do what I want to do, time is not on your side. You know, this, this is a restive population. They're not forever going to be so forgiving with us. And say, okay, it's all the U.S.'s fault, it's all Israel's fault, it's all Saudi Arabia's fault. We need to deliver for them. And if you're not going to allow my reforms to go through, which you haven't been allowing them to go through, then we're going to have a real problem. It seems like a bold 
and, and, and an unusual strategy to risk destabilizing your government in order to push through your agenda. Can you dig into that a little bit? Sure. Well, he didn't start the protest. The protests were started in Mashhad, which is a very holy city in Iran, because it, it holds the most revered Iran, Iranian religious site, the Imam Reza Shrine, who was one of the 12 Imams of, of Shia Islam who was buried there. His chief rival in the election is the custodian of the shrine. And this shrine and this religious foundation is, if not the largest religious foundation in the Muslim world, is one of the largest religious foundations in the Muslim world. Certainly top three. Um, and it controls most of the land in Mashhad. Um, Rouhani wants to tax this foundation because this foundation has a lot of resources. In that budget, it was clear that this foundation wasn't going to be taxed. So uh, Ibrahim Raisi, his chief rival, put his people and supporters on the streets in Mashhad and said, you know, these supporters, you know, Rouhani's failed us. You know, he's not he's not played straight with us. Nuclear deal is a disaster. He's a failed president. You know, it's all a facade. Immediately after this, Iran's vice president, Rouhani's vice president, said, you know, those who start these protests will have their fingers burned in the end because they don't know the once you light this fire, you don't know where it stops. Immediately thereafter, and you can see this online, you can, you can, you can Google it, you saw protests break out everywhere, like literally like fire in these rural areas. So I'm not, I, I'm not saying that Rouhani necessarily you know, told the supporters to take the streets. Absolutely not. But I think that, that he knew that, okay, if you guys are going to do this to me in Mashhad, which is a very important city in Iran, you know, I've got cards to play too. And the cards I have to play will have many more people point the finger at you hardliners than they will at me. Now, that being said, I think both miscalculated, both sides miscalculated because a lot of the grievances of people in the streets were against both and against the entire establishment. But it didn't start out that way. It started off as an economic protest. And then I think there are people within that protest that decided to, became sort of a cause celeb. Everyone got involved to voice their grievances and some sides were, became very anti-regime, started tearing down pictures of the Supreme Leader, saying we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the whole thing has to, to go down. But that was very small in number. I mean, that, that, you know, I think in the Western media, they, they've, um, we've, we've, we've very much hear about this narrative, but I mean, these pro, I mean, Iran's a country of 80 million people. If you take conservative estimates about the protests, they say between 40 and 50,000 nationwide. Let's take a very, you know, uh, non-conservative and liberal view, let's say a few hundred thousand nationwide, 300,000, 400,000. You know, in the height of the Green Movement, you had 3 million people on the streets of Tehran. It never came close to that um, in, in the entire country. So the, 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 the masses have really, you know, stayed at home. They haven't taken to the streets. So one of the things that uh, I think it was in your uh, Reuters article, on your you you hinted about the idea that uh, one of the backings of this was the fact that the you know the masses thought that after the Iran deal and all this money that was coming back in and the sanctions being uh, some of the sanctions being lifted uh, would mean you know great boons for all their pockets and uh, everything would be fantastic and the fact that that didn't happen uh, is one of the reasons that this that um, these protests started. Uh, I find it kind of ironic that Republicans are lashing onto this when it point, it kind of proves the trickle-down economics doesn't work, but, you know, that's a side point. Um, I, the question uh, I think that then kind of becomes obvious is, 
there was there was obviously a lot of money that went back into Iran. Well, however many billions it was is obviously up to debate. And obviously, the sanctions being some of the sanctions being lifted uh, should have improved the economy to some degree. Um, where is that money going? Well, the economy has improved. I mean, the, the Iranian economy was... Well, it only could have gone up. Really. Yeah, exactly. It was contracting for three years prior to, even when you had, before the JCPOA, remember we had the JPOA, the Joint Plan of Action. Um, and the Iran's economy was contracting from 2011 till, 2000, till last year. Um, last year, it bounced up 7%. This year, it's forecasting at 4.2%. The IMF now is able to go in, they weren't able to, to do these studies, I think during, at least do these studies comprehensively during the, the sanctions period. The, the problem is, is that in the, we overinflate this number of, you know, these were Iranian funds that were blocked in various foreign accounts. It wasn't money that was gifted to Iran. And they, they amount, if you take the US Treasury Department, and I do, I take their statistics as, as, as much more accurate than Republicans in Congress, anywhere between 50 and 70 billion. When you talk about a national economy, 50 and 70 billion is not a lot of money with 80 million people. So yes, that money came back to the Iranian coffers, the state coffers. But you have to imagine for many years, this money was outside the country and Iran's economy went further and further behind every year. Essentially what the sanctions relief did was allowed Iran to go back into the international market and sell its oil and gas and petrochemicals. That was something that they were not able to do at the height of sanctions. But even that, even having unencumbered sales of oil and gas and petrochemicals, you know, Iran is not a state like the UAE or Qatar where it has a few million indigenous people, it's 80 million people. You know, it's not, you know, Saudi Arabia with 14 million barrels a day sold on the international market with 25 million people is still struggling. Um, it's, in it's now borrowing money. This, this sanctions relief is not going is, is not the end all the panacea for the Iranian economy. The Iranian economy has structural issues that need to be addressed that haven't been addressed for 38 years. It's high, it's heavily state subsidized. The state controls most of it. This money that's come in, you know, it's it's, it's come into into the central bank and it's been used to fund infrastructure projects. It's been used to fund infrastructure projects that haven't been done the last few years. Um, it's yes, some of it's used to fund foreign adventures. It's fun, their, their um, military industrial complex, but that's, a, that's really a small fraction of it. A lot of it has, has gone to pensioners and, and, and it's not enough. And even then, it's just, it's just not enough for people to, to, to make a living on. So this sanctions relief is really overblown. I mean, I, I'm not saying the Iranian economy, um, sanctions have not hurt the Iranian economy. They absolutely have. It's been 38 years of sanctions. But it's not the it's not the reason why Iran is in this mess today. They're they're in this mess today because of mismanagement, corruption, and nepotism of their own economy. If there is some increasing awareness of this, or at least if the the underlying discontent behind this is essentially that that uh, you know this has been mismanaged, and you know, and and uh, and folks in rural areas especially are having are having difficulty making ends meet or getting ahead, uh, is. A, a two-part question, is the, the legitimacy of the government itself at all in danger here, and, and or is Rouhani in danger here? Well, that's a great question. This is a shot across the bow. I mean, if one thing the Islamic Republic has done the last 38 years, it's, it's managed to navigate itself through these periods, 2009, 1999, 
after the war with Iraq, with the period of reconstruction in the 90s. Um, it, the public face has always been, you know, these are some discontents and, you know, agitated by foreigners. But privately, they, they do self-correct in their own ways. You know, you had the 2009 Green Movement, and for four years, you know, people were fed up with Ahmadinejad, including the Supreme Leader. And then you got Rouhani, which by all accounts seemed to have been a much more open and transparent election in 2013, and again, this year. Um, I think that he can strengthen his mandate and have leverage over the deep state of Iran, those, you know, the, the unelected pillars of the Iranian government, and he can use these protests to his advantage. I think if the, Iran's only reaction is going to be, we're going to crack down and not listen to our, our people, especially our people that are, you know, I call this a red state revolt. It's like if in Indiana and in Kentucky and Tennessee, people started taking to the streets against Donald Trump. This is what essentially has happened with these protests. So Iran has to, has to listen to these people and figure out a way to make their lives better, provide jobs for them, um, you know, provide an income for them that gets them by. If they just, if their only reaction is going to be truncheon, you know, these things will continue and they'll, they'll get bigger and bigger. They have not hit the, the middle class in Rouhani's base yet. But, you know, over time, these things can mushroom. Um, so I don't think he's in any danger right now, but he will be in danger if he and the regime don't self-correct and start listening to these people and, and, and start making really, really smart decisions about how they're going to improve their economy. So taking that to the next step, it's clear that the, you know, the regime isn't going anywhere tomorrow. Um, if, that's the, if that's the case, that there is still enough stability that they're not going away tomorrow, why, haven't, why hasn't the uh, regime cracked down in the same way that they did for the green, during the Green Movement? Well, and that's a good question as well, because the, the numbers are just not as high. In the Green Movement, I told you we had two to three million people on the streets of Tehran. Now, that's a fourth of Iran, the Tehran's population. Um, you don't have anywhere near these kind of numbers. The, the, these protests, a lot of them have, have fizzled out. Um, and also, the, 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 they're smart enough to know that if they crack down really hard, that could usher in a, another cycle of violence. So they've been, they've been very, very targeted in how they've approached this. What they first did, and they started on, I believe, on Wednesday, is they went to the major cities, the major squares. And they made sure that, you know, those were stable and, and not, um, not having large gatherings. Then after a couple of days, they started going into the, the rural areas. Unclothed, I'm mean, sorry, ununiformed officers. Um, so people, you know, civilian looking people, but were, that were actually, um, part of the, the security apparatus. And they sort of, you know, were looking around and making sure that, that the people weren't gathering and, and discouraged people from gathering. And sometimes when people gathered, then they responded right away. Um, but I think they learned from 2009 that cracking down really hard has very bad consequences. And they also saw that, listen, this is really not a threat to us. This is very small in number. So if we overreact, the pushback from the people is going to be much worse. So they may have some incentive to see if this thing, for lack of a better term, burns off. I think it has a bit. 
I mean, the reports I'm getting is that, you know, things, I mean, in Tehran and, and in the major cities, I mean, I've, I've been talking to people and they've been telling me, you know, we don't really see anything. It's, it's fine. We're all going out again. Um, in some cases in Tehran, they never stopped and, and everything's under control. And, and Rouhani's base, that large Iranian middle class, they, while they're, I don't think they have a love for the regime, they don't want to see things destabilized and, and, you know, they don't want to see things destabilized and they don't want the regime to fall either because the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't know what's going to come after this regime. How do you know, Iran's a large country, multiple different ethnic groups, a lot of different religions, a lot of different languages. Um, there is a sense of national identity and cohesion um, and at the same time, they've seen what happened at the Arab Spring. They've seen, you know, states that were once very unified and, and had a national identity fractured and become failed states now. And, and I think that um, that's, that's a very, that's a great fear for the average Iranian is that we don't want to see Iran become Iraq or Libya or Syria. Right. So, uh, Amir, before we turn towards uh, sort of the way the world should or could react to what's going on or just Iran in general, uh, just one final question on kind of the internal aspect. And this is something you and I have touched on uh, privately in the past. Uh, there's a lot of talk that uh, Rouhani uh, very much wants to be the next supreme leader. Um, can you kind of walk through the steps that take place to elect or appoint the next supreme leader? And how does this sort of uh, economic uprising impact the chances of that happening? Well, I mean, I think that's, that, that is always looming behind anything now that happens in Iran, because this is Rouhani's last term per the constitution. He can't run again for a consecutive term. He'd have to wait. There's nothing left for Rouhani to do, but become Supreme leader. He's been a part of the regime and had various prominent positions for the last 38 years since he was a young cleric. Um, there is the battle for power in Iran. Ultimate power rests with the supreme leader. You know, and we don't, we don't live forever, and this supreme leader will pass away like the last one did. And then it's up to um, a council. It's sort of a, a, a council of experts, of, of clerics, to, it's almost like a Vatican conclave. They go into conclave, if you will, and various um, ayatollahs nominate other other ayatollahs, and then they take votes, and then a supreme leader emerges. Um, now that's what happened in '89 when Ayatollah Khomeini died. This time around, though, you know, while that's legally what's supposed to happen, you know, you've got an IRGC which has has huge influence. You have the clerics very divided as to who should be the next supreme leader. You have different factions, different parties. And so, yes, there is a proper roadmap in the Constitution as to how it's supposed to happen. But, you know, that could get all thrown out the window, too, if, you know, this, if the IRGC says, you know, this guy isn't good enough for us and we're not going to follow him. Sorry. Try again. That could, that could be a, a very, very defining moment for the history of Iran and the Islamic Republic because it's... This is something that Rouhani wants, he's angling for, because he feels he can unify all factions. But there's a lot of pushback within the system, especially among the hardliners. They don't want him because they know that he 
has a vision for Iran that's much more open and neoliberal than they're willing to go. Who is his potential successor? Does he have one uh, within the, the the political structure so that when he is when he's term limited out, is there someone who can carry on his agenda or is, has that yet to come into focus? Yet to emerge. He will back somebody, um, but it hasn't it's 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 not clear right now who it is. His certainly his his rival, his chief rival to become the next president and to become supreme leader is this man in Mashhad, very hard line principalist uh, cleric uh, that runs this massive foundation that got 15 million votes um, the last election. Um, He both wants to be president and supreme leader. And the path to becoming supreme leader is you serve one or two terms as president. This supreme leader did. That cleric, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, you know, was running for the presidency and, and, you know, uh, was in the runoff. So that, that's the main rival. And the conservative hardline factions are backing him. So turning now towards sort of the way the world is approaching this, particularly the United States, um, I think the, the, the kind of, there's two basic questions, three basic questions, I guess. The first is how should the U.S. respond um, the second is if the idea is that the U.S. is seeking regime change in in a way of not actually saying the words regi- regime change, why wouldn't they try to take advantage of the economic uh, uprising by reimposing sanctions to kind of you know put the put the boot on the neck of the regime? And and the third one is, well, your opinion: how should the U.S. react right now? Well. It, it, he, so there's a macro and a micro to this. I mean, and, and the and the spoiler is Donald Trump. You know, he has. If this was another U.S. president, um, I think his words would have resonated much more with the Iranian people. But I think this has nothing to do with the U.S. and, and Donald Trump. And I think the vast majority of Iranians have a real dislike for Donald Trump. Why is that? Well, because he has sided with Saudi Arabia in in targeting Iran as being the the the, the cause of all the ills in the Middle East, you know, the average Iranian has no love loss for Saudi Arabia and views Wahhabi Islam and Sunni radicalism as its greatest threat. And all those people that are marching in the streets, if all, if all of a sudden the U.S. or a, a coalition of Arab countries attacked Iran would turn right around and defend Iran. That's number one. Number two, um, Donald Trump's Muslim ban and putting Iran on a list of countries that um, their citizens would not be able to get visas coming into the country. That really, really offended uh, Iranian national identity because it put Iran on a list of countries that were essentially failed states. And there is a large and quite successful uh, Iranian diaspora in North America, both in the U.S. and Canada. And many of these people have family members back in Iran who would get visas to come and visit them. And families have been torn apart now because they can't, they can't see each other. A lot of the Iranian Americans don't want to go into Iran under this climate because they don't want to be held um, or have something bad happen to them uh, while they're in country. And their, their parents or their nieces, their nephews, their grandkids can't come out because they can't get visas. So 
Donald Trump's words on Twitter, I think, are just ring hollow. There's, they're, they're off, they, they're, they're, I think it sort of tunes out. Um, now, that being said, I think it's very important for the U.S., Europe, the whole world. Every, every government, every citizen in the world has a right to protest against their government peacefully. And we should always be on the side of peaceful protesters everywhere. It's a legitimate right of, of every citizen in every country should be anyway. But I think once you start going from that to, you know, weighing in on, you know, overthrowing a government and how can we do this? Not the U S doesn't have a good record of, especially in Iran, but in the broader Middle East in general of destabilizing governments and putting something in place that's better than what, what it had before. Look, I know we're over three, but let's not go. Let's not The Iranian public is very savvy to this. They're like, you know, so had we not done Iraq or Libya or, you know, some of the other things that we had done the last, last two decades, maybe there was, there was, there, there would be some resonance, but I think what's happened, they, they see the track record. They're like, you know what? We have a stable country. We have a safe country. Yes. We are not, you know, things are not great. You know, we're by no means Western Europe, but we don't want to have, you know, our country destabilized and have this regime who we was trying to, you know, by kicking and screaming reform from within be replaced by something we have no idea what it is. So I think that, I, th I think the U.S. doesn't want to be seen as, you know, going back into the Middle East and overthrowing regimes. That's just, we don't do that really well. So, so to answer your question, Ellie, absolutely we should be speaking out. I don't think we should be speaking out on the side of the protesters. I don't think we should be weighing in much more than that. Because I think, I mean, you saw what happened in the UN. Nikki Haley tried to have this discussion and she was essentially, sh she was shouted down by Russia and China. And the Europeans said, you know what, by the way, if you're thinking about using this as a pretext to exit the nuclear deal, we're not buying it. So it got, it got no, it, it really got nowhere. I guess the last question on this, and then we'll move into our, our lightning round, uh, Frank signaling me on the, on the time. Um, uh, as I mentioned, there, there's a whole bunch of uh, sanctions uh, waving that needs to happen over the next uh, two weeks. Where do you see the Trump administration going with with the Iran deal in the in in the well in the next month? Difficult to say because <laughs> the president and his administration are so unpredictable. I shouldn't say his administration; the president's so unpredictable. <laughs> and then, by extension, his administration. Look, I think he may waive sanctions again, um, but still decertify and give Congress and the Europeans more time to come up with some formula. I think if he doesn't waive sanctions, um, you're going to see the U.S. really isolated. And you saw this from statements that the French president has have made and the German foreign minister have made, um, and the Russians, the Chinese continue to make, is that, you know, if you want to exit the nuclear deal, we're not up for that. Um, and I think the U.S., look, the, the whole Jerusalem decision, um, they had a reception, uh, Nikki Haley had a reception at the UN for the countries that sided with the, with the US on it. I think there were 11. Um, I mean, how much more isolation do we want as, as the greatest power on earth? You know, do we want to continue to be sort of outside of the, the mainstream of, the, of global consensus? I mean, the consensus around the globe is we want the nuclear deal is working. You know, we want to stay in it. If he exits it, I think that the U.S. is just going to be isolated. I think the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese will go along with it. Um, and I think you're going to see what you saw in the 90s where the Europeans, when Bill Clinton 
push through sanctions against Iran. And the Europeans said, you know, we're not going to go for that. You know, we're, we're going to continue as is. And, you know, the U.S. would essentially stop its own companies from working there. But the rest of the world continued. I think that's what that's what will happen. Right, this has been a great conversation. Uh, Frank, do we want to move into the into the lightning round now? Yes. Let us move in now to the lightning round in which we pose a series of questions, some ludicrous, some not, uh, for your very quick analysis and opinion. So, uh, Amir, the first one, uh, and you can pick one or you can have for all of them, but we ask uh, folks, what's the best book or TV show or movie that you've read or seen lately? I love Black Mirror. All right, that'll work. <laughs> um, uh, the best book I've read, um, it's by, actually, it's by this Israeli um, historian um, called Sapiens. Uh, I can't pronounce his name, Ellie. So you have to look him up, but he is just brilliant. And I just really enjoyed it. I, I, I couldn't put it down. I finished, I think, in two days. All right. Uh, I will check that out. The, uh, the second question is uh, your favorite drink, alcoholic or not. We don't uh, cast dispersions. Love red wine, love beer. <laughs> uh, third question. Uh, and this is where we get a little um, irreverent. Is a burrito a sandwich? I don't think so. Nah, sandwiches, you know, it's got to have a, like sort of a fluffy bread to it. A bur burritos, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's more like a wrap. This right. is correct. This is the sound analysis, analysis American needs in this difficult time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is solid. Uh, the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind is uh, by Yuval Harari. Yeah, I really recommend that book. And he's written another one, which I can't wait to read. This guy's brilliant. It's really, 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 um, you know, sort of puts things in context. <laughs> Makes you worried about where we're going, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the uh, fourth question, then I'll turn it over to Frank. In the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's a what's one single organization you're supporting and why? You know, I support a, a bunch of Democratic organizations. <laughs> they're all, <laughs> you know, resist. <laughs> um truman truman national security project oh, all right not bad considering how many truman members we've had on you're the first one to stay to support the truman project absolutely. <laughs> this for almost a year <laughs> absolutely why not 2018 new year new organizations to support uh, <laughs> all right, thank you for so much for joining us for people who want to follow your thoughts and analysis where can they find and follow you i should tweet a lot more than i do uh, but you can follow me at Ahan Johnny at Twitter. And, and I tend to write, you know, like once a month and in a Bloomberg or Reuters or, you know, foreign affairs or something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll publish something. I'll, I'll put it on Facebook. I'll put it on, um, I'll put it on Twitter. Sounds good. Uh, all right. Um, we'll wrap, wrap this up. Amir, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll keep you on the line as we take this out, but uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. This has been uh, incredibly enlightening. We'll definitely have you on again, maybe to talk about something that's not Iran related just for you know, I love to talk about fun. There, there are two things I love to talk about because I, I want to I'm conducting a poll now is where is the best hot chocolate in New York and I that's I think that's really necessary in the winter I mm -hmm. have not yet to have a, have a great hot chocolate and where in New York has the best brunch and these are two things that we should really give some some thought to well, both are kind of near near me too that are very highly recommended one is a place called good enough to eat um, is uh, very good for brunch. And then okay. there's a place it, it's a uh, trying to remember now that we're just talking about this and whatever. Um, there's uh, I think it's, it, it's like a gelato place 
that makes hot chocolate that's supposed to be amazing. I'm trying to find the name. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it that quickly. You got to you got to you got to text me on what that is because I've just been very disappointed in this weather not finding great hot chocolate. Uh, it's called Amarino. It's a, oh, I know that. Yeah. I didn't know they have hot chocolate. Okay. Yeah. Supposed to be very good. Uh, all right. So Amir, thanks so much. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes again so we can get that sweet, sweet Casper mattress money. And follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in Phaeton. Uh, with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week for Cape Cod, where in the past week, a handful of sharks frozen in ice have washed up on the beach. The official explanation for this is that the painfully, absurdly, one might even say monstrously cold conditions that have bedeviled much of North America and the Northeast in particular over the past week uh, froze the sharks to death and then the tide washed them up. But we have our suspicions. Gentle listeners, we have had for weeks, nay months, incontrovertible evidence of the ocean's nefarious plans to invade our sacred terra firma. Octopi walking on beaches, seals shopping at fishmongers, real wrath of God shit. Now they're putting their plan into further action, trying to ship sharks, nature's perfect killing machines, onto solid ground using ice blocks as shipping containers. The front of the war on the ocean is Maine, my friends, and we will not be found wanting. We will fight them in Maine. We shall fight them on the snowdrifts and on the ice flows. We shall never surrender. We take ship now for Cape Cod. Take care, everybody. <laughs>